Lord is good, and um, He is just continuing to be gracious to us um, in this life, and uh, promise to, promises to be even more gracious to us in the life uh, that is to come because of Him. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 7 is where we're going to be hanging out uh, today and next week um, as we continue this sermon series through the book of Exodus. This particular uh, sermon today is titled, The Savior and the Serpent. And so if you want to follow along with me uh, this morning as we read the first uh, 13 verses um, in the book of Exodus chapter 7, this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When the Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. There once was an evangelist inside these great United States that we are, the United States of America, and his name was D.L. Moody. Um, he was an evangelist, traveled all over the place, preached. Um, he's known for Moody Publishing, if you've heard of that, and several other things as well. But in speaking about Moses, and particularly what was taking place inside of the book of Exodus, D.L. Moody says this quote, he says, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody. And 40 years showing what God can do 
with somebody who found out that he was a nobody. Over and over again, inside of the book of Exodus, but also inside of uh, the Old and the New Testament, this is the constant um, theme that we see, is that there is an almighty God, and then there's us. And God, being almighty, has the power and the holiness and the glory and the goodness and the grace really to take uh, the shine off of man being exalted and, and, and rather God showing that he is the ultimate one to be worshipped. And as we see from Genesis to Revelation, the more that God is honored, the more that God is worshipped in all of our lives, the, the, the more of a blessing it is that we are not him. We will see inside of this passage and the coming weeks several rounds of fighting taking place between what appears to be an earthly man named Moses and an earthly man named Pharaoh. But behind the scenes, what is ultimately taking place is a showdown between God himself and sin, Satan, and death. As we looked at our passage today, we continue in this journey looking at how God is delivering and answering the question of who is the Lord is the question of Exodus. It's going to be asked several times and the Lord in his providence, in his goodness, and in his sovereignty is showing us repeatedly who he is in actual historical happenings. We see inside of this uh, passage that we just read in these first 13 verses of chapter 7 that, that God once again sends Moses, his, his prophet, to Pharaoh to ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go so that they can go to the promised land and worship God in their own land. They're, they're weary. They've been crying out. They're greatly disappointed in God because of the slavery that has come to them because of the Egyptians. So God, in his conversations with Moses, tells Moses that he and Aaron are to go back to Pharaoh. And we see again that God is gracious toward Moses in providing a, even a prophet for the prophet. We see this mouthpiece his older brother, it's believed that, or the Bible tells us that, that Aaron is about three years older than Moses. By this time, they're staring inside of Pharaoh's court, and Moses is 80 years old, and his brother is 83 years old. And they go together, but in this moment, Aaron is the spokesperson. And so it has this understanding, this appearance, as God tells Moses and Aaron that from Pharaoh's perspective, that Moses himself is a God in his presence. It wasn't that Moses all of a sudden became a deity, but in the eyes, God orchestrated this in the minds of men, that from Pharaoh's perspective, that when Moses stepped into the room, that he too was a deity. See, as we've discussed inside of this series, Pharaoh was not just uh, believed to be an earthly man. But from the sons of Ra, one of the major Egyptian gods, he is the son incarnated. He is the son 
of God. Pharaoh is. He is worshipped as a god. He is deity in flesh. And so it would not have been strange with inside of the Egyptian understanding of things for a person to be walking around in human form and being the incarnation of a god. And so from this battle that's taking place, God sends forth a prophet for the prophet. Aaron is the prophet of Moses. But, but what Pharaoh doesn't understand is, is that Moses is the prophet of God. And so everything that is happening here, everything that is being communicated inside the throne room of Pharaoh is ultimately not coming from Moses. It's not coming from Aaron. It is coming from Yahweh. It is coming from the great I am. Inside the passage, God tells them that when they go and ask to set the people free, that what is going to happen once again to Pharaoh's heart? The Lord says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to send you to do this, Moses, but as you do this, just go ahead and be forewarned. The brother isn't going to listen to you. I'm going to make sure he's not going to listen to you. When when new believers or non-Christians read such passages as God hardening another person's heart, man, that could be really difficult for them to understand what is taking place here. It seems really messed up. You know, three times in the book of Exodus, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, declares that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Six times, Yahweh actually hardens his heart. Seven times, the hardening of his heart is expressed by kind of a divine passivity from Yahweh, who is the implied subject of the hardening. And then three times, we're told that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So it begs the question, if you're a good reader of the book of Exodus, then who hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. The answer is actually, both of them did. And and we've got to understand, though, from two different perspectives. We must remember, first and foremost, is that this Pharaoh is not a follower of the God of the Bible. He is not a follower of Yahweh. This man is a reflection of all those who do not follow Jesus, of all those who do not follow the God of the Bible. This is a wicked Wicked man. He is an evil man. This man has a hardened heart whom God will harden even more. See, God will turn Pharaoh completely over to what Pharaoh wants to do. It's an act of judgment for God to do this. And God is good and holy and right in order to do this. See, God is going to use the the hardening of Pharaoh's will, the hardening of the wicked people to bring forth judgment as he declares, I'm going to raise my mighty hand against this man and these people. He is good and right to do that. Even the Egyptians deserve this from God. And yet, what is God going to do through the stretching out, through these plagues that we'll cover in the next few weeks, 
through these acts of judgment, God is going to bring forth judgment upon Pharaoh, judgment upon the Egyptians. Why? Ultimately, for God's glory and for the good of the Israelites. Pharaoh isn't sitting on his throne wishing that he could get something different from God. Pharaoh's getting exactly what he wants. He is an evil, wicked, hardened man, and God is going to harden what is already there and make it worse. God is going to use the heart, the hardened heart of this earthly king to flex his power even more. See, God, ladies and gentlemen, is glorified even in judgment. Hell itself is a place that God still reigns over. It is a place void of God's love. It is a place void of his compassion. It is a place void of his mercy. But it is not a place void of God himself. Jesus holds the key to heaven and hell. Is the righteous judge over this place of punishment for the wicked. We're going to see that the harder it is on Pharaoh in his kingdom, the more of God's grace will be magnified in the deliverance of the Israelites. Why? Because, again, as, as we're going to see, the only difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites is this, is God has chosen in his sovereign providence to be gracious to one group and not the other. We're going to see that there is much comparison between the ways in which God's people, his chosen people act, and that of the Egyptians. God has chosen in his sovereignty to be gracious to them. They, the Israelites do not deserve to be delivered. They deserve to remain in the bondage of the Egyptians. And yet, God is going to lavishly pour out his mercy upon an undeserving people group. Paul will later talk about this in the book of Romans, chapter 9, speaking on the very hardening of Pharaoh's heart, he will say this. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my, my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. See, God is going to use the events of the Exodus to not just spread the fame of his own name in a, in a country like Egypt, but God is going to use this in such a way that thousands upon thousands of years from now, in a place called America, there's going to be a guy on 1200 Old Barren River Road who's still going to be proclaiming this ancient story about an almighty God. God is going to expand. He's stretching the narrative. God is going to reveal that he is bigger and that he is in more in control of he's in control of everything. See, God wants the ancient world to to hear about who he is and about what he 
can accomplish. God is displaying his power over and over and over and over and over again. The story of Exodus is more than just getting the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. It is getting the very name of God spread throughout the world. Likewise, you and I are humbled this morning for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We too are humbled because of the divine judgment that you and I both deserve. And yet, he has been gracious to us. We see this inside this passage that is, as Moses has gone, as Aaron has gone, as they have been commanded on what to do, that, that God again is revealing from behind the scenes that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart even more. We, we understand a little, with a little bit more clarity of why God is, is doing this and how he is able to do this. But we need to see here that these acts of judgment um, are, are, are really coming down to who has the ultimate authority? Is it Pharaoh? Is it Moses? Or is it our God? Now, I've got to do a little bit of background information here, a little bit of history. I promise this is not wasted on us this morning. Something that we need to understand about Egyptian culture is, and, and if you do some research on a lot of ancient religions, there are lots of ancient religions that revolve around serpent worship, snake worship, okay? And I know the mere word snake, for some of you, freaks you out, all right? There was a time in dating my wife where I could not show her a drawn picture of a snake, or she would run. Literally, I could get a pencil and a napkin, draw a thick snake on it, and she would be scared. That's how frightful she was. She almost broke up with me one time in Panama City Beach over a fake snake, and that is not a lie, okay? Fear and the worship of snakes was something that was very prominent in this land. They were extremely fearful of snakes as, as many of, of you are. All right? Snakes don't, they just don't really bother me, but I don't want to like land in a pit of them or anything, but snakes just, just don't really affect me. Now, a rat, I do not like rats. If this was about rats, I'd be right there with you, like a big old possum-sized rat, big old nasty teeth. You've seen the Princess Bride when they go to like the, the dark jungle there and the big rat, anybody follow me? Have y'all not seen The Princess Bride? You may not be Christians if you haven't seen that movie. It's, I think it's a it's, uh, Chua Chewbacca 3-5 or something. It says, like, you got to watch the, the Princess Bride. But anyway, this isn't about rats. This is about snakes. All right? They so feared snakes that they began to worship them. I mean, isn't that what we've seen kind of even in, in Scripture about God, that we're to have this healthy fear toward him, and that healthy fear toward him, what does it produce? Worship in us. Cobras, snakes, venomous snakes, all these sorts of things were a, a common symbol inside of ancient 
Egypt. You, you saw them all over the place. You, you see snakes found in Egyptian tomb art. You, you see snakes on vessels. How many of you guys have ever seen the, 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 like, the snake armbands that like curl around women's arms and these sorts of things? If you watch movies about Egypt, if you'll pick it out the next time that you do that, which is you know what we do all the time, is, is you will see a consistent animal pictured in all of that. And it's a snake. It's on purpose. Snakes were often illustrated as carrying the pharaohs off into the land of the gods. The snake was a symbol of kingship around the time, and, and it appeared on the headdresses of the, the, the pharaohs. So I have this image for you guys. This is not the pharaoh that was in charge, but this is King Tut. And if you've never noticed this about King Tut's tomb, um, is this huge headdress. And it may be hard for you to see, but up at the top of that headdress, there is um, like a vulture and a snake. But also the shape of its head is meant to mimic that of a, a raring cobra. Everybody seen a cobra? It's like, oh, that's a gardener snake. And then he rears up and he got that big old neck, right? That is the picture of the pharaohs. Pharaohs would have wore headdresses like this in, in a symbolism of the shape of the cobra, reared out and ready to strike. It was believed that the serpent goddess, Wajet, who protected the pharaohs. That's who this is supposed to be symbolizing. It's believed that the snake goddess Wajet would spit venom at anyone who threatens the pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron step into the throne room of Pharaoh. And there is the venomous The pharaohs believed the snake was a symbol of their power, of their sovereignty, of their security. I've got one more slide about this. Whenever a, whenever a pharaoh would take over the throne, whenever they would commission this man to be the pharaoh, listen to this incantation that they would say. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. I would suggest to you this. That there are constantly two realms colliding in the throne room of Pharaoh on that day and on every day. See, there is this earthly conflict that is taking place again between Moses and Pharaoh, but there is an even greater battle that's being waged in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms, between God and Satan himself. I mean, if, if your daughter brings home a guy and he's like, yeah, I, I 
I quote this incantation to snakes. Like, this sounds like some freaky, I don't know, movie, some scary movie that you would just imagine the, the, just the, the, the satanic nature behind even these very words that are being mentioned here. This is pure evil. See, in the book of Genesis, we, we see the garden. And the, the garden of Eden is a place where heaven and earth overlap in this area. God declares that things should be created, and it was. And, and it was good. And then after being introduced to the first parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and God's purpose in creating them and creating the earth were to be fruitful, to multiply, to essentially be His representation, His image on the earth. And it's all good. Everything is going great. And then what do we meet? A snake. A talking snake at that. Now, again, creatures, wild creatures, interesting mythological creatures are, are things that we see inside of the Bible. See, we have a tendency to think of the angels as these big, big, really white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed things with huge wings. And yet, did you know that inside the Bible, that angels don't have wings, folks? Then there are other creatures that do. Cherubim, Right? Seraphim, the cherubim are like the big, they got like six wings, like they're covering their entire bodies. There's another one called the seraphim, though. You know what a seraphim is? A snake with wings. A bright, glowing, snake-like beast with wings. Now, we see in the book of Revelation, thank goodness, that for those of us who are in Christ, when we actually enter into the presence of the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim, that they're not paying any attention to us. Right? That's good news today. We are not lunch for the seraphim and the cherubim. All right? But the, all of their attention is on what? It's on the almighty God. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All their attention, all their focus, all their worship. But this angel, this, who has the ability to be a shapeshifter, is in the garden. This serpent is rebellious toward God, His Word, and attempts to lead the children of God to join in His rebellion as He did with some of the other angels. I, I hope this is not something that you have to believe in, but I hold into the belief that somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that there is something that takes place in the heavenly realms by the time that we get to Genesis chapter 3, and that is the falling, the rebellion led by this serpent, this angel, and he is able to convince, deceive other angels as well that they want to do what? They want to overthrow the very power and nature of God. They are essentially declaring, as Pharaoh is declaring, is that I am God. And he wants to convince what? Adam and Eve, that what can you be? You can be.
After God curses the snake, he declares that one day one would come and that the snake would bruise this person's heel, but that this person would crush the head of the serpent. Now, oftentimes when we hear about this serpent, we call this person Satan, do we not? And it is. But we need to understand just a little bit of Hebrew this morning is that any time that the word Satan is mentioned inside of the scripture, in the original language, the original Hebrew, there's actually the word the in front of it. Satan is not the devil's name. It is a characteristic. It is defining something about who he is. He is the word, that Hebrew word there. It, it means to be the adversary. He is against God. It is the Satan every time that it's mentioned. Unless it's talking about actual human beings who are being um, the adversaries against God. So this adversary, and, 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 and that we need to understand is, is that, that this creation of his, the Satan, is in constant state of rebellion against God. The Satan masks around as, as a counterfeit representation of God. His mission is then to tempt and to deceive and to lead humans in a rebellion against God as well. We'll see him described in, in later parts of Scripture. We'll see him again as a snake, a serpent. Um, the Satan is often described as a great sea monster, right? And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you'll see him called and or described as this dragon or beast. Satan, the Satan, the devil, the adversary, he leads this rebellion by distorting God's character, right? He distorts God's word. He, he distorts God's creation. He's constantly inverting God's good creation and plan. For instance, what is the, the we all love this one, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Satan will take this good gift and he will convince people in rebellion against God and that we see inside of Scripture to use babies in a form of worship by killing them. We see this continuing in today's time through abortion. It is a demonic activity. The Lord says, be fruitful and multiply. The enemy says, kill babies. The Bible will tell us that a man, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, right? That, that marriage over and over and over again inside of Scripture is between this, this man and this woman. And yet, what does Satan come into the very early scenes inside the book of Genesis and in leading his rebellion against the Word of God and is making what appropriate? Homosexuality informs of sexual immorality that we cannot even speak of. See, he takes the good gift. He takes the blessing. He distorts it. He twists it. He offers it even before God is ready for you to have it. We see this over and over throughout Scripture. 
The Bible tells us that the Satan is the prince of demons in Matthew chapter 12, 24. Scripture refers to him as the evil one, Matthew 13, 19. He is the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. He is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. We witness him spearheading attacks on God's people in Job, in 1 Chronicles, in Zechariah with his power. He does this in Acts 26, 18. He binds the, the people in Luke 13, 16, and he oppresses them in Acts 10, 38. The scripture reveals that after the fall, Satan and his demons were let loose on the earth. And what do they do? They attract, they compel, they promise, they tempt. Many of the humans that have been in powerful positions throughout the course of history, the scripture alludes that ultimately behind these kings and queens is a demonic force. You see this as early as Genesis chapter 10 when there is an earthly king named Nimrod, which that's a great name, who does what? We are so great. Let us build this tower in our name to show God Almighty how good and how powerful that we are. He was an earthly king, but ladies and gentlemen, there are the hisses of snakes that are lurking in the shadows that are manipulating all that is taking place through these earthly kings. Behind many governing powers inside the scripture are demonic, evil creatures. I don't know if you've ever been to like a third world country or a fourth world country, but it doesn't take long in talking with the people and talking with people who live there, like missionaries, that one of the major problems inside of these third and fourth world countries is the government. Like you just ride around and you see all of the oppression. We did this when we were in Africa talking to Mark Phillips, one of our missionaries, and we're talking to him about how many millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that America gives to the country of Niger. And yet, it is the poorest country on the planet. And the more you research it and the more you study it, what you begin to find out? You begin to find out that the people at the top that are in these powerful positions are skimming money for their own, and it's just making the people under them more and more oppressed and poor. And so it's really easy for us to go through there, because as Mark and I and some others were riding around, I just had to, I was like, man, you, there is no doubt that this is a spiritual warfare taking place that there is some sort of demonic presence that is, is over the government that is continuing to suppress these people down, down, down. Like it's palatable when you're in those places. Like this is an evil place. But it's really hard for us to say that about America. Now, don't misquote me. I have no idea which ones are and which ones are not. 
But if I'm the enemy and I am wanting to lead a large mass group of people away from their focus and attention being on an almighty God, the way that I would do it would be to give those people and make them gluttonous and fat on whatever it is that they want. And yet we will see time and time again, even in our own country, I think that it is okay to be patriotic. It is not okay to worship America and its government. And yet it happens every day. We see a very serious thing taking place. See, our idea of, of what we think about Satan worship, like when I say that, I immediately go back to my childhood. All right? Um, we couldn't play things like Dungeons and Dragons because... If you grew up, in a, if you're a good church boy, you didn't play Dungeons of Dragons because we've heard all of these crazy stories about how the kids who play Dungeons and Dragons end up seeing demons running across their, their rooms. All right? So one of Dungeons and Dragons taking place in our house. There are all of these things. When you think about the idea of, of Satan worship, I immediately think about this album that inside of this album from this song called Hotel California, that that song is really about the church of Satan. And if you do, and this is true, if you open up that album, all right, they're standing in a hotel, like a hotel like area, and up in the corner, there is, at that time, the current like priest of the satanic church in that window. It is weird. But immediately, because of the way my imagination works, I begin to think of all those sorts of things. All right? I, 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 just, I just imagine a bunch of people dressed like Obi-Wan Kenobi, wearing goat skull masks, standing on a pentagram in candlelight in a cave. Anybody follow me? And they're looking for animals and young ladies to sacrifice. That's what comes to my mind when I start thinking about Satan worship. Is that true? Well, it's, it's very, very possible. But I want, to, I want us to see something very quickly here this morning, something that is, is more deceptive. Is that Satan worship looks more like the throne room of Pharaoh. than it does a dark cave with sacrifices. It may possibly look a lot more like a bank or Wall Street than it does some sort of scary movie sort of representation. Because again, the, the idea here is that it's not, and that may be luring for some people, but if you like come knocking on my door, I'm with the Church of Satan. I'm like, yeah, have this track. We're having this meeting on Friday night at this cave at a Shanty Hollow. You want to come join us? And by the way, do you know any young ladies that live in the neighborhood? That doesn't do a thing for me. All right? I pity the fool that knocks on my door. Right? That may work for some people, and it does. But for the majority of us, that's not how the enemy works. 
it works in the form of an ungodly relationship. It, it works in the form of, of money. It, it works in the form of drugs and alcoholism, lying, stealing, cheating. Uh, it, 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 the Satan, I mean, he's scheming, he's seeking, he's crafty. He, he, he and the, the re- rebellious angels around him, are, 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 they're, they're enticing you with things that you are naturally bent toward this, this want, this craving, this C.S. Lewis, the, the, the cake, the cookie that, that the child wanted so bad that he was craving, he wanted it beyond anything else. He had to have it, and it led to his death. That's the way that the enemy works. So in this picture, to go back to Exodus chapter chapter 7, we have this picture. God says, go to him. I'm going to harden his heart, but go to him. And when he says, what I want you to do is, is I want you to throw down Aaron's staff, and that staff is going to become a snake. It is going to work this miracle, right? And the, the believing at the first reading here is that when this happens, then Pharaoh's going to step back and be like, oh, man, how did he do that? Moses is God, must be God. But what do we know that happens? They throw down Aaron's staff. And when they throw down Aaron's staff, the Bible tells us that the magicians are called, the sorcerers are called in. And they too throw down their staffs. But there's a purpose behind this. See, in Egyptian culture, not only is the snake symbolic in what they wear, but so is the staff. You can imagine just for a moment that that Aaron's staff is a shepherd's hook. And yet Pharaoh's staff and of his workmen around him would have been made of of precious gold and precious materials. The Egyptian staff was one of authority and leadership and power. It was believed that these staffs in the hands of these sorcerers and magicians and, and these pharaohs, that it could actually produce a magical Feats within these golden staffs, it is believed that the power of one of the Egyptian gods, his name is Osiris, dwelt in these staffs. You may know what the Egyptian god Osiris is known for. He is the God of life, death, and resurrection. See, I read this and I go, couldn't God think of a cooler miracle? Right? I mean, anybody else is like, I know we're just getting started here. But again, you, you have to understand, you've got the rest of the book here. Let's pretend for a moment we don't know what's going to happen. I'm thinking, couldn't you just like, why didn't you just like show up all of a sudden? If you can do the burning bush thing, like show up, consume, you know, a wall weed that's hanging on Pharaoh's wall, right? Consume it, but don't burn it up. Start speaking from it. And Pharaoh and these people are probably going to back down a little bit, God. Now, God, I ain't here to tell you what to do, but that sounds like a lot better job from my perspective than you throwing down a wooden stick and it becoming a snake. I am not God. And I don't know what God knows. See, God was putting his power 
on display. He was speaking right into, and I, and I don't want to, again, creep any of you guys out, but this is, stuff is real. There are demons, demonic forces, and they're not running around like little trolls and little hobbits with spears and sharp teeth. No, they're, they're running around on this earth acting, looking like, engaging, in many cases, like human beings. Like pharaohs who believe in what they wear, that they are God. And what they hold in their hand in this gold staff as they throw it down. And, and the Bible says what takes place. Both of those rods become serpents. And again, I mean, I've heard all sorts of explanations for this. Well, you can grab a snake behind its ears. I didn't know a snake had ears. Like, you can grab it, you can circle, circle, dot, dot, touch it in the right spot, and it stiffens up and becomes a stick. I mean, you will hear all sorts of explanations. Can we just... Those gold rods turned to snakes. They turned into these huge serpents. I do not believe that it was a magic trick. I honestly believe that it was the forces of sin, Satan, and death itself that miraculously performed those miracles. And I think the Bible can attest to that. In Matthew chapter 7, there are non-believers who cast out demons and perform miracles. There is, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, there will be false Christ and false prophets will perform great signs and miracles. In Acts chapter 8, there's Simon the sorcerer who, who acts in such a way that people are amazed. In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul will say that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. The magician snakes are what, though? The Bible tells us that they are swallowed up. For a moment, it appears as those Pharaoh's magicians have won. Moses, God appears weak, right? Oh, you can make a snake? I can make a snake. But then the air of the room shifts as, as Aaron's staff swallows up both of their staffs. This doesn't change Pharaoh's heart. It only gets much harder. However, this is foreshadowing something that is very true about our God. If Pharaoh is the physical representation of Satan, the great serpent, then God is illustrating all of their power, all of their authority will be swallowed up by the one true God. The poor shepherds throw down their staff. It was a direct assault against these Egyptian gods. God, in one moment, through the swallowing up of those other serpents, reveals that He is the all-powerful, all-knowing God. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh will ask? Who is the Lord, Pharaoh will ask? Well, Pharaoh, the Lord, is the all-powerful, sovereign ruler of all creation. He is the name above all names. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the Holy One. He is and will not be mocked. He is, is, is not to ever be duplicated, but He is often counterfeited. This is God. This story illustrates 
that the power was not in these men. That the power was not in the staff. But that the true power is only in the hands of God. Later on, inside the book of Exodus, we see this idea of the enemy being swallowed once again. This time, it's by the Red Sea. All of this is pointing to God's greater glory. It's all pointing to his character. It's all pointing to his nature. It is all pointing to his plan and his purpose. See, the Exodus is God's triumph over Satan. But it's not his greatest triumph over Satan. The Exodus has always and will always be pointing toward the person and work of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus comes to earth in flesh, yet his focus is on what? The spiritual realm. All the earthly humans are and the Jews at this time, they do not understand this. They're, they're wanting him again to perform all these miracles and, and to feed them and all these sorts of things. They, they wanted this kind of earthly warrior king to give them back their land and their wealth and their position. But Jesus came to defeat sin, Satan, and death and all the other rebellious enemies. Jesus comes to, to put God's supreme power on display over Satan in the kingdom of this world. Satan will use every ounce of his limited power in pouring that out onto Jesus. Does Satan use governments against Jesus? Absolutely. King Herod, Pilate, the Roman soldiers. Satan will tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And what does he do in the wilderness? Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus spends 40 days out there wrestling with the enemy. And what is he promising Jesus over and over? I'll give you wealth. I'll give you this kingdom. I'll give you all of these things. You can have them right now. You don't have to do this thing that God wants you to do. I am Satan. I am the Satan. I am the adversary. And I will give it to you right now. Satan will use counterfeit religion against Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, Satan and demons stand behind pulpits every Sunday. They did it during Jesus' time, and they do it now. Did Jesus not look at the Pharisees and say that brood of vipers, you snakes. Like These are the people who, you know, you guys remember when they used to give you awards for going to Sunday school? Anybody that old and went to church? Or they had a sticker wall, right? 
Eric was here. He gets a piece of candy. He brought his King James Version of the Bible. Um, he, he got his memory verse. There's another peppermint, right? I mean, we're just... <laughs> I just went out like bags of candy. He's like, you tell me how to be good. I can be good. Jesus looks at them and says, you, you snakes. I mean, he's, he's looking at the people who, who have gotten all of the, the, the Bible trivia right. Like, they, their chart is just filled up. They got pockets and bags and bags of incentive candy. And he, he looks at them and he says, you snakes, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Satan will use death itself. Think about this. God allows Jesus to be swallowed up in death. In the Old Testament, in this passage, God swallows up the image and the power of Satan in those rods. He swallows up um, Pharaoh and his army in the great Red Sea. But in this moment, God allows Jesus to be swallowed up into Satan's death and darkness. Satan's weapon of mass destruction is the death of God's own son. Can you imagine the party that is taking place among the rebellious angels as they watch Jesus be abandoned by his friends, be beaten, be hung on a cross, or, or the rejoicing in the kingdom of darkness as Jesus hangs and dies upon the cross? Satan's plan, his diabolical plan is ruined. It's ruined because by dying, Jesus swallows up our darkness. Jesus saves us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. As God will make the power of Satan through Pharaoh's kingdom look foolish, and we'll see that over and over and over again, Jesus, even a true and better Deliverer and rescuer and savior will triumph over sin, Satan, and death through the cross to illustrate Satan has no power over Jesus. And therefore, has no power over you and I who are in him. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 1 Corinthians 15.54, the Easter passage, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. In Revelation chapter 12, we see this description of the Satan, the adversary, and he's described in 12.9 as the great dragon who was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the world, has been thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan's power this morning is real. He's the prince of this world, but his power is not absolute. He can do nothing, ladies and gentlemen, that God does not allow. Every time Satan believes he has created and implemented the perfect plan to overthrow God, God ruins it and uses it for his own glory. And one day, the Bible tells us that Jesus will forever swallow up all of sin, Satan, and death. And so we're left with this response today. 
today you will either leave here in relationship with the Almighty God through Jesus, the one who has absorbed all of the darkness for you. You will leave here today. You will walk out here today in a relationship with this Jesus or you will walk out here in your own rebellion. You will walk out of here pleading and trusting that Jesus has made a way, that Jesus has covered all of your sin, that you now stand holy and righteous and, and love before an almighty God who deservingly should put you in eternal slavery and bondage. And yet God is merciful. He is the powerful one. He is the one who has defeated Pharaoh, but even more so, He is the one who will defeat sin, Satan, and death through His Son Jesus. And you can leave here today in an in eternal, never-ending relationship with Jesus, or you're going to leave here in rebellion which is what sin, Satan, and death wants all along. Relationship or rebellion? False worship, Satan worship, comes in many different forms. And yet God has provided a much greater alternative. He has provided Himself. Do you know this Jesus? Or will you continue to be a part of the rebellion against an almighty God? The Bible says that one day when Jesus comes back, that every knee is going to bow, that every tongue is going to confess. And the picture there is this. When He comes back, it will either be one of two things. It will be like the loving father who's come home from a business trip and you're the kid and you know that daddy bought you something real nice. You love your dad. And when Jesus comes back, you will run to meet him or fly to meet him. I don't know how all that works. But everything inside of you in that moment, if you're in Christ, will exude a longing to be with that God. Or when it mentions that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you will either respond as relationship with Him or you will respond as a defeated, rebellious enemy who has lost the war. And you have no choice then but then to surrender. I beg with each and every one of you, Come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. That means turn from your sin. Turn in faith. Come to Jesus. Lay down your life for Jesus because He ultimately has laid down His life for you. Trust Him. Trust in Him for salvation. Do not trust the schemes and the whispers of the evil one. But cling to Jesus even more. Because this Jesus is God. Let's pray.